welcome to the Girl Tries Life podcast, where we show you that women are capable of absolutely incredible things when they have the right tools, strategies, and mindset in place. Now, this week on the podcast, it's a little bit of a twist. It is a coaching episode, but it's a coaching interview episode, if that makes any sense. So many of my clients uh, really struggle with the stress of financial worries, be it credit debt, student loan debt, uh, the strain of a job loss and how you manage your finances, all that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to bring in an expert and because this is not my area of expertise, but I do understand the stress of it. So today we're joined by Nicole Olson, who is an insolvency administrator with BNA Debt Solutions. I ask Nicole all the things. <laughs> we talk about what to do when you lose a job budget-wise, how you manage student loan debt, what to do if you're up to your eyeballs in credit card debt and you see no way out of it. Um, Nicole really helped to shed light on the consequences of bankruptcy and how it's not actually the end of the world. But she also discusses some really great alternatives, some that I had never heard of before. And finally, Nicole has provided us with some really great resources, which I have linked to in today's show notes. So you can find those at girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast dash 116. We've linked to everything that she discussed. Um, For my non-Canadian listeners, It does sound uh, like there are some very similar programs in other countries, just under different names. But my main takeaway, which applies to any listener anywhere, is to talk to an expert. When you are in it, when you are in that financial stress, it can be really hard to see the light. But when you talk to an expert, they're going to help you to find a path out of debt and you'll realize that it is possible. So I want to say a huge thank you to Nicole for sharing her wisdom. And uh, before we get going, I just want to let you know, if you want to have her back on the podcast to talk, to talk about any other sort of financial topics, please send me your questions. Uh, you can comment on the show notes. You can uh, send me a message on Instagram at stresslessladies. I I really would love to have Nicole back on. I think there's so many other topics that we could talk about as regards financial stress, but I would love to hear exactly what you would want to hear about. So send me your questions, send me your your concerns, and we will look at doing that. So the, I, I do just want to let you know the Girl Tries Life podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is powered by ATB. Now, we are in the end of June here, and on September 1st, we'll actually be having We'll be celebrating the Pride Parade in Calgary. And ATV lighted up rainbow style for Pride across Alberta every year, from their building in downtown Edmonton to their Pride Brick Road at their Stephen Avenue branch in Calgary. And ATV is actually a long-term, a long-time partner of Camp Firefly and Firefly in Schools. So if you've seen ATB's Pride MasterCard ads, chances are it made you cry with its accepted everywhere message. But I, I do encourage you to check out Camp, Fly, Camp Firefly. They do some incredible work for for youth, in particular LGBTQ uh, youth. And I've linked to it in the show notes how you can learn more about that and even donate to Camp Firefly and send send a camper if, if, that, if that appeals to you. Now, this particular episode is also brought to you by the Alberta Blue Cross Wellness Summit, which happens on October 10th. And the Wellness Summit is a day to explore fresh perspectives and practices around wellness. This year, the focus is on what it takes to create healthy workplace cultures where everyone thrives. Supporting the health and wellness of employees is becoming a major consideration for many workplaces, and Alberta Blue Cross wants to connect the dots of what it takes to create healthier workplaces with happier people. So they have a great lineup of speakers, and I highly recommend that you uh, check out the summer at The Wellness Summit. And they've really designed it so that you're not just sitting and listening. You're going to have a chance to actively engage with information, the speakers and other attendees. And it's also a really affordable summit. So it's happening at the Renaissance Edmonton Airport Hotel on October 10th. And again, you can learn more at thewellnesssummit.ca. Final, final ask, uh, just letting you know before we start the interview. If you have been enjoying the Girl Tries Life podcast, if you find it helpful, if you find it beneficial... I would love it if you would hit pause right now and in your app, wherever you listen to this podcast, if you could leave it a rating and a review, it would make a huge difference. I try and bring you guys experts on different topics and speakers from all around the world and the reviews actually help to do that because it shows that 
we have an active audience, that our audience cares about the interviewees, that uh, that you're engaged, that you want to hear more. So by leaving a rating and review, by, by saying how much you enjoy the podcast and the value that you get out of it, it really helps me back up those interview asks. So if you could hit pause and do that right now, you would make my day and help me bring incredible speakers to your ears. Okay, so without further ado, let's head on over to the interview with Nicole. Well, thank you so much, Nicole, for joining me on the podcast. I'm really pleased to have you. Awesome. Thank you for having me. So for those who don't know you and don't know what you do, can you give us a bit of that rundown? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of would say that I'm a financial literacy expert, but I specialize in debt management issues. I guess I've been in the industry for almost 12 years now, and I started as a nonprofit credit counselor out in Ontario, which was a really, really rewarding type of job. People would come to me with their financial problems we would talk about how to budget and money manage. And then I got an opportunity to move out to Calgary and teach more people about financial literacy. So I teach a financial coaching program at Bow Valley College. And then I wanted to really specialize. So I got into essentially bankruptcies and becoming a licensed insolvency trustee. So currently I'm working for a company called BNA Debt Solutions and we're a licensed insolvency trustee. And we actually do some like legal stuff to help people get out of debt. Oh my gosh. And I mean, we're living in Alberta, so we've been through quite a time in the past few years. What has that been like? What are the kind of scenarios you've seen coming through the door? Yeah, that was the real reason that it brought me out to Calgary. Um, It was in 2016. I guess a lot of the trustees were finding that they didn't have enough staff to kind of deal with the amount of people and clients that were coming to see them that really needed help. So that's why we moved out here. And uh, it's it was really tough with the downturn in the economy and the issues with the oil patch. We were seeing a lot of people that were, they did everything right. They had their budgets. They were making good money. They even had emergency funds. Sometimes for a year, they had an emergency fund. And they were just depleting that emergency fund, trying to make ends meet, hoping that it was going to turn around, and it just never did. So then there's the next step where there's this reliance on credit and debt to try to kind of keep you afloat while you're trying to solve other types of problems, employment problems. And you utilize that credit to get you through. And sometimes it will, and sometimes it won't. So it's been a huge change. Yeah. Yeah. And you, we were talking about this before uh, we started hitting record, but like that is what you're often told by the bank, right? Like here's this beautiful line of credit, use it in the event of, of an emergency. But what is sort of the consequence of that? Yeah, I guess a big thing is, is you can use the credit in the event of an emergency, but... I say it's kind of like a train. When you try to stop a train, there's a lot of forward momentum with it. So you can pull the brakes, but it's still going to move like half a mile, right? So, sorry, that's my American stuff coming out from Ontario. (laughs) (laughs) But so it's going to take some time for the momentum to stop. And credit is very similar. Even if you get that job right away and you start working again, the momentum that you've created, you've now got to kind of start building that back up again. And it could take a while. Not only do you have to keep it um, even keel to what it was before, but you actually have to make a little extra to continue yeah. to pay back the debt that you were using when you were off. So say someone gets laid off tomorrow. What do you tell them to do then? Like avoid line of credit, avoid credit card? Like what is the, what would yeah. that step be? First step, don't panic. Um, <laughs> coming from Ontario, my husband and I dealt with a lot of unemployment. Uh, we had variable jobs quite often. My husband was a welder in an Ontario. It's like half the time you're on EI and the other half the time you're working and it could be very seasonal. Yeah. So we actually got into the point where we had two budgets and the minute he got a layoff notice, we were like immediately into layoff budget. Right. Um, so we would pull our kids out of daycare. We would take a car off the road. We would stop the insurance on that vehicle. We would do everything we could to uh, cut all of our expenses to live off of one income at that point in time. Sometimes we did need to access credit that um, during that period of time, but we would limit it very, like it would only have to be for emergencies if we needed it. And is that one income plus EI, assuming you've got the hours for that kind of thing? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Assuming that you have the hours. But sometimes what happens, and I found a lot out here in Alberta as well, is that some people don't qualify for unemployment insurance. They might be contractors. They might own their own business and they haven't been paying into EI. So they can't even access those resources when yeah. they're unemployed. They're immediately unemployed with like absolutely no income. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you've got, so you should plan for your one no income budget right away. Mm -hmm. Like have that in your back pocket. 
Um, what else would they do in that scenario? And then, so there's different types of expenses that you have to cut your expenses. You have fixed expenses, which are typically like your mortgage or your rent payment, car payments, things like that. You also um, would have your variable expenses. Those are things like groceries, gasoline, any types of entertainment. Those are actually the easiest ones to cut, yeah, right? Because they're the ones that don't make uh, a huge difference. It doesn't take a long time for them to change. Like if you need to change your mortgage payment, it's not really easy to call yeah. the bank and say, hey, I need to change my mortgage payment. Another option could be though, with any of those fixed expenses, if you've been paying any type of insurances to help you cover those costs in the case of unemployment, it's really good to start reaching out to those people right away. Okay. So sometimes you can pay for a mortgage insurance that says, if you're unemployed, what do you do? Um, you contact them and they will start making your mortgage payments for you until you go back to work. Oh, wow. Some okay. people even pay for that type of protection on their credit cards, right? So if they're carrying some credit card debt, they might be able to contact their credit card company and get on this where they make their payments for you until you get back to work. I f and do they make the payments for you plus the 18% interest? <laughs> well, the interest yeah. will still accrue, but they'll make yeah. the minimum payment for you. Oh, yeah. they make the minimum payment. Okay. okay. Now, if you're not carrying any debt, and so I guess that's the big thing is the first step, if you're carrying a debt load, any type of change in your situation, you are still obligated to make that debt payment. Yeah. So if you don't have the debt in the first place... One thing is, is that we have debt and the other one is cash flow, right? So yeah. when we're talking about changing our expenses, that's where you're kind of making those adjustments in your cash flow, money in, money out. But if you're holding on to debt, that's just an expense that you have that you have to continue to make. So if you never had that expense in the first place, it's not a payment that you'll have to continue to make during your unemployment period. Okay. Okay. So say you are a young-ish person, late 20s, early 30s, whatever, in Alberta, otherwise, whatever, laid off from your job. Maybe you don't have credit card debt, but you do also, have, but you have student loan debt. Mm -hmm. And you have no income coming in the door. Like you say, you're still obligated to pay that debt, but what happens when you literally have no income? Way to pay that debt. <laughs> like, yeah. right? Student loans actually has a uh, really, really amazing program. So as long as you're up to date with your student loans and they haven't gone to collections, um, they have this thing called the Repayment Assistance Program. So it's through the National Student Loan Center. You can just give them a call, say, hey, I need to talk to somebody in the Repayment Assistance Program. They'll send you an application. You apply for it and what they'll do is you just show that you're going through financial hardship. For some people, it may be just like, I just got out of school. It's been six months. You're now charging me for my student loans. I don't have a job yet. Right. Even during that period of time, you can contact the repayment assistance program. Okay. Uh, and what they'll do is they'll drop your student loan down so that you're just paying interest only payments, which is really easy to make during that period of time. Sometimes if it's really, really financial hardship, they won't ask you to make a payment at all during that period of time. Right. The catch is you have to reapply every six months. Okay. So every six months they want an update on your financial situation. Okay. Okay. So maybe let's talk credit debt again. Cause like that seems to me terrifying that 18% or whatever it is again and again and again. again. Mm -hmm. What do you do? <laughs> like, so I ask a lot of just like, what do you do? I don't tell me how this works. Like if yeah. you can't, if you don't have that kind of credit where they're able to pay your payments for you until you have a job, if you're just in a lot, not just, if you're in a lot of debt and you can't make those payments, whether like you're employed, underemployed maybe, mm -hmm. or like, how do you just keep that from piling up and up and up to where it just feels like it strangles you? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and when we typically see people, because uh, when I have a lot of clients coming in on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, they come in for various reasons. And um, like I was saying before, a lot of people just assume that when somebody's filed for bankruptcy or consumer proposal, it's just because they didn't know how to manage their money. They tried to live like the Joneses mm -hmm. and they kind of overspent. Um, I would say, Rarely as that is the case for most people, most of the people that I see that come in to see me, they're coming in because a life situation has changed. So unemployment is a big one that we'll see. Mm -hmm. Another one could be um, a marital breakdown. So a divorce, separation. Those are really huge, right? You're going from two incomes down to one income and then trying to manage. Double the like expenditures, right? Like, I mean, in terms of like two households now. Exactly. Yeah. And then trying to maintain that, especially if kids are involved, mm -hmm. right? Maybe child support is coming in or maybe it's not coming in. 
So divorce and separation is another one. Another big one that we're finding is illness, right? So mm-hmm. some people are getting sick, they're not able to work, and they're off work. Business failure is another big one that I'm seeing out here in Alberta. So of those big things, those are just life things that have happened. It's nobody asked for that to happen, and it's not that they were being negligent in those things happening. It just did, and it's life, and that's how life functions. So when they come in, they, they might have two problems. The first one is cash flow, and that one can be handled by understanding how much income you have coming in, how much your expenses are going out, and making sure that you have enough money to maintain your expenses. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, then looking at either increasing your income or reducing your expenses. Do you think most people have a good handle on this or or not? It depends. Yeah. (laughs) Some people really do. I would say actually the more... um, the more income that you have, sometimes it can be more challenging to try to get a handle on your budget. I actually find mm-hmm. a lot of my uh, low income clients are the ones that have the best budgeting skills because they have to work with so little, right? Yeah. So they really understand how to stretch a penny and they know exactly how much everything costs and how much their bills on are on a day-to-day basis. It's definitely a skill that anybody can have. And I think it's really good. It's one of those things that you should be checking in with on a regular basis. Yeah. Cause I would say I have like, we've done a budget and I would say I have a good ballpark of like roughly all the categories and how much total Mm -hmm. but I couldn't tell you month to month exactly how much we spend because I don't track it that way I'm kind of like we make enough to cover that then there's a little bit of sort of buffer on either end Mm -hmm. sometimes uh, you might be surprised if you actually did track it what you actually spend your money on. Oh, I so did that's that one really month and that was terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I look at my Starbucks cup. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah. How much was that? How yeah. often do I spend on that? Exactly. Know, but it makes me so happy. <laughs> and nobody says you can't spend things on, yeah. right? It's just prioritizing. Yeah. So I say budgeting is step one. It's kind of taking a look at a budget is a projection of what you think the month is going to look yeah. like. So I think I'm going to have this much money coming in and I think these are going to be my expenses. So I've kind of broadly painted an idea of my month. And then when we actually track things, it's like in science class when you were like, I have a hypothesis yeah, yeah, and now true. here is my proof. <laughs> yeah. That's what the tracking is. And a lot of the banks have some really great apps okay. um, where they'll track your expenses for you just based on your banking information. Okay. So I know ATB does, uh, CIBC, TD, all of the major banks typically have a tracker program. Okay. And they'll know, they'll see that Starbucks and they'll put it under like dining out. Mm-hmm. And usually that's the one level of expenses that people are like, oh, I spent about $200 a month on dining out. And then when we actually add it up, it's more like four or 500 dollars yeah it's just little things here and there we call them money gobblers yeah yeah shoppers drug my I find that to be the random like catch-all of diapers yes <laughs> and baby supplies diapers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you throw in the chips yep mm-hmm. yeah skip the dishes is mine yeah <laughs> that's fair okay so you've got your budget and then what next you're tracking your expenses making sure that you can live within that budget yeah and then you might have this secondary problem of I have too much debt Yeah. So one of the rules of thumb that I always kind of run by is I'll have people add up their total amount of debt and kind of give me an idea of what their monthly payments are on their debt. And this isn't including like car payments, mortgage stuff. Those are secured debts. So they don't really count towards unsecured debts. Unsecured debts are just like poof money. Yeah. (laughs) It isn't really attached to anything. Um, Yeah. Like an asset. Yeah. It's something that you've spent and is just gone. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So when I'm talking to people about what are your unsecured debt payments, I don't like to see people spending more than about 15 to 20% of their income, of their take-home income, not before taxes, Mm -hmm. but of their take-home income on debt repayment. Because if you're spending upwards of 30 or 40% of your income on debt payments, you're going to find it really hard to live. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be really unmanageable. So that's the first thing I kind of take a look at with people. Can you handle this debt on your own? Some people can. Maybe it's a $10,000 credit card and they need to pay it off. Or it could be their student loans on their repayment assistance program. Mm -hmm. Is that something they can handle on their own? If they can, then maybe it's just kind of seeing is there a way for them to rearrange it. So there's this thing called the debt snowball method, which is kind of fun. If you have uh, maybe three or four credit cards and they all have different varying interest rates, you figure out how much 15 to 20% of your income is. Say, okay, that's $1,000 a month or $500 a month. And you make minimum payments to the lowest interest cards first and then take the rest of that money and attack the highest interest card. Okay, okay. Sorry, at first I thought you were going to say and you don't touch the highest one. I was like, what? No, no okay. There's got it. other consequences to that. Okay, got it. So you attack that high interest card until it's gone. Once it's gone, you then attack the next highest interest card. Okay. And after a while, the debts will be paid off. The key is, is you cannot continue to use the credit cards. Right. Yep. 
So that's option number one. Um, another option would be to talk to your bank about possibly doing a consolidation loan, right? Sometimes that can be really helpful if you have multiple high interest debts. On credit cards, you can go to the bank and say, hey, I'd like to consolidate these into one loan. Usually they can give you a lower interest rate from anywhere from like eight to 12%. And then you get into a monthly payment where you can't re-borrow on that loan. So does that pay off all those credit cards in full right away and now your relationship is with the bank only? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like there's more interest racking up on those. Those are completely wiped clean. You pay the bank. Got yeah. it. Okay. Key is on that one is that you have to close all those other cards. Yeah. Because if you don't, what sometimes can happen is you continue to use those cards and now you have double the debt. Yeah. Right. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> so that's an option to consolidate. A lot of banks can work with you on that. If you still have really good credit, they'll be willing to give you consolidation loans. Sometimes they'll look for security. So they might ask you like, do you have security in your home that we can use or possibly a vehicle that we can attach to? Because they might want to secure that loan to an asset mm -hmm. just in case you default on that on that loan. Yeah. Okay. Quick question because like, I feel like Visa debit has changed some things. Like in... I feel like we're told you need to use credit to build credit, <laughs> like to, to get a good credit rating, good credit score, and yet it can get you in trouble. Is Visa debit kind of the solution where you're only, you have the ability to use it in other places like a credit card, but it's pulling just from your bank account? Like, is that where you say if, you, if you're struggling with credit, like stay in that? zone? I like the Visa debit because it allows you to continue to purchase things online and um, still get the benefit of using a credit card without actually borrowing money because yeah. you're just using your bank account. But it is not building your credit. So it isn't a credit. It isn't a piece of credit that's going to help reestablish your credit. Yeah. So the things that would report onto your credit report through Equifax and TransUnion are things like possibly an overdraft to, uh, uh, on your bank account, depending on how high the overdraft is. Um, it would have to be at least $300 or more for it to show up on your mm -hmm. credit report. Credit cards, lines of credit, loans, secured loans like uh, mortgages and car loans, uh, student loans as well will all show up on your credit report. Uh, a myth is is that your utilities will show up on your credit report. They don't. So okay. I've had clients say to me, oh, I pay all my utilities on time. That should help me rebuilding my credit. I'm like, it doesn't because you're not borrowing anybody's money. You're just paying for a service. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm switching gears just quickly because mom brain will <laughs> take this question away from me if I don't ask it now. Your mortgage, say you're a first time home buyer and you're going out and you're looking at buying a house. I was really disappointed with my bank when I went in and they told me how much we could have qualified for mm -hmm. versus what I was comfortable spending mm -hmm. because they told us we could have afforded a house that was $250,000 more than what we ended up paying for our house. Right. That seems really unethical to me. It seems really risky because had we done that, we would have been living to pay that bill. Right. So what is your kind of like guideline in terms of like how many times your income or whatever that you should be looking at for a house price? Because if you trust the banks, you're going to be screwed, in my opinion. <laughs> you got to be careful yeah. because I always think like everybody has to keep in mind, you know, the banks offer great services and they uh, they all provide really good products, but they're also selling products. Yeah. So when you go in, it's kind of like how when I go into the grocery store and I'm like, oh, the stuff that's on the aisle says it's for sale, but it probably isn't. They just want me to buy more of that. Yeah. <laughs> when I go into the bank and they ask me if I want a credit card, it isn't because they're doing it for my best interest. They're yeah. trying to sell me a credit card. The same thing goes with mortgages, right? They're going to try to offer you as much as possible to let you know what your options are. You really got to be solid in what can we afford? So I don't have a specific number to say this is the best number because it, it depends on the situation. Mm -hmm. If if one of the spouses has a variable income or a job that they, they consistently get laid off for, or yeah. maybe the plan is, is that you're going to go down to one income because one parent is going to stay home to raise the children. Yeah. Then you really should be looking at affording a house that you can support on one income and not two. Yeah. Right. Because when we looked at ours, we were like, okay, this is how much we're paying in rent. We want to be able to afford a house with a mortgage that that mortgage payment is barely a leap from rent to that. Right. And like, we are not in as big a house as many of people I know. Mm -hmm. But I am fine with that because <laughs> I can pay my bills. Right. Right. And there's the term that, you know, it could, it could be like house poor. Yeah. Right. And so I use that sometimes as well with some of my clients. I'll say, listen, I don't like to see on um, 
because remember I was talking percentages. I yeah. said 10 to 15 should be on debt repayment. Another good rule of thumb is about 35% of your income, of your take-home income, should be spent on housing. Okay. So that includes your mortgage, your property taxes, or your rent if you're just renting, as well as like your basic heating bills. Okay. Your water, um, not cable. Yeah. <laughs> or your alarm system. So if you're around 35% of your income is going towards that housing, then you're pretty much spot on for where you need to be. Okay. Now keep in mind, I always say these percentages kind of come with a little bit of a grain of salt because I would never ever use this for a client that was low income or struggling, right? Because they might be spending 60, 80, 90% of their income on housing at that point in time. Yeah. So 35% isn't going to work. Okay. So I guess back to credit debt. Yes. Um, <laughs> what is the next step then? Like if you are, you get that Maybe so. One of the options was you get that consolidation, a consolidation loan. Consolidation loan. What's another option if the bank says no to that? Yeah. So typically the next step is you go in, you go for a consolidation loan. The bank's like, sorry, we can't. Your debt to income ratio is too high or your credit is too difficult or you don't have security to secure to it. What's the next step? So the next step in the kind of gamut of options available to you is a thing called credit counseling or an orderly payment of debt programs. So there's two really good programs that are here in Alberta that's available to people. Credit counseling is done through the Credit Counseling Society. And uh, the orderly payment uh, repayment of debt program is through Money Mentors. Okay. Um, both of those two programs are nonprofit. And what they do is uh, a lot of clients can go and talk to them. They can help them with budgeting. So they also provide some additional budgeting services, which is fantastic. And then they kind of lump all of the payments together. They're still very separate, but it feels like a consolidation loan for the client. So what they're going to do is they're going to say, okay, we're going to put you on a debt payment program or an orderly payment of debts. And you're going to make one payment to us. We're going to take that payment and we're going to pay all your creditors for you on a monthly basis. Typically, their programs run anywhere from four to five years, approximately, um, and you make those payments, and during that period of time, you're going to pay back 100% of the debts that you owe. So if you owe $50,000, you're going to pay back $50,000, give or take a little bit of interest. Both of them have some small interest payments, but in the grand scheme of things, most of the creditors will reduce their interest rates, either down to zero or maybe 5% or so. And like, so you're saying about $50,000 of debt in five years. An average human being, that's possible? Yes. Yep. Well, depending okay. on the income, right? Yeah. A lot of people say, I, I might have a client that comes in the first mor- like first thing in the morning and say, I've got $10,000 of debt. It's overwhelming. It's so much debt. I don't know how to handle it. And then in the next breath in my afternoon appointment, I might have somebody who has $500,000 worth of debt. It's all relative based right. on your income and your family situation, right? Okay. So, so it is possible though. Like I think a lot of people think like this is the rest of my life, right? And if you make just the minimum payments on your credit cards, the way they're, they're asking you to project it out, you may be paying that for the rest of your life. Okay. I would say that if you're paying your, your unsecured debt for any longer than five years, you really need to be looking at, do I need to restructure this? Because it's not going to provide me the relief that I need. And then you're just going to be kind of like stuck to this debt payment the entire time. Okay. Okay. So this credit counselor... Yeah. So you pay them um, and they take that payment and they pay your creditors for you. And it does negatively affect your credit. So this is where we start talking about options that could affect your credit. Typically though, if you're maxed out or if any of your credit cards are in collection, your credit's already being negatively affected. One of the biggest things um, that can affect your credit score is maximizing the total amount of debt that you have. So if you have a credit card with a $10,000 limit and you're maxing it out at $10,000, even though you're paying it every single month, by maxing it out, it's negatively affecting your credit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So they would kind of drop you. Each of your creditors will rate you on your credit score from a one to a nine. And one means you're making all of your minimum payments on time. Two means that you're 30 days late with a payment. Three means you're 60 days and it kind of so on and so forth. If you were to do an orderly payment of debts or a credit counseling program, those debts would be dropped down to a seven. Okay. Right? So like I say, it'll negatively affect your credit for the length of time that it takes you to pay off your program plus an additional two to three years depending on the credit reporting agency. Okay. But it's a valid option for people that are like, yep, I can pay back my debts. I just need it to be structured a little bit better. Maybe I'm making 20 payments to creditors. I'd rather just make one monthly payment. Yeah. Makes things a little bit easier. Really helpful for things like payday loans, small credit cards, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. What about bankruptcy? What is, is yeah. that a no-no? Is that a... 
No, definitely not a no-no. Okay. And it's not a bad word either. Okay. <laughs> Everybody thinks it's a bad word. So I guess the next step after that, if you were to try credit counseling or order the payment of debts or maybe go in and talk to them and they're when you figure out if you were to pay back 100% of your debts, the payment is still too much for your budget to handle, which can happen quite often. Then your, you know, your next best option is to talk to a licensed insolvency trustee about a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy option. So a bankruptcy is covered under the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. And what you're doing is you're saying to your creditors, I have to access this legislation through a trustee and I don't have the ability to pay back my debts. Let's see what's available. So the trustee will actually take a look at all of your financial situations. So they'll do an assessment. They need to take a look at your assets. They're going to take a look at your income, your family size. A lot of things happen there. Assets, a lot of people are always worried. They're like, oh my gosh, if I file for bankruptcy, I'm going to lose my car. That usually doesn't happen. Um, a lot of the times there's exemptions. So there's provincial exemptions for assets that can't be touched in a bankruptcy. So there's things like uh, if you own a home, it's your primary residence, you're living in the home. If there's $40,000 of equity, that's exempt. Really? Yeah. So a lot of okay. people can keep their homes. Or in this type of housing market that we have in Alberta right now, some people don't even have any equity in their homes because the house house prices yeah. have dropped significantly, right? So if that's the situation where your mortgage and your house value are pretty much the same, there's no equity in that home at all. It's exempt as well because you're just you may choose to continue to pay your mortgage lender. Yeah. Vehicles are the same. You're allowed $5,000 worth of equity in a vehicle. And again, for most cars, they're fully loaned. Yeah. Or again, like my vehicle, the loan is worth more than the vehicle. Yeah. Because <laughs> they depreciate in value so much. Or if you have a fully paid for vehicle, $5,000 of that equity in that vehicle is exempt. Okay. House, there's a portion of household goods that are exempt. There's a, por- a portion of your personal property that's exempt. So there's quite a few exemptions. RRSPs are fully exempt as well as RESPs, which is a big one. Okay. So I want to touch on that because I know a lot of people who are in this kind of crazy debt and they pull their money out of their RRSPs to pay for it. Right. Yes, no, good thing, bad thing? Well, I mean, like I say, if you ever have to go down the bankruptcy route, it's just good to know that the RRSPs are completely exempt. So it's okay. not an it's not something that you have to do. But some people, maybe they only need to pay a little bit from their RRSPs to pay off their debt, yeah. and that's a decision that they want to make. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't tell people yes or no, don't do this, but I just kind of say... But if you, say if you're like on the older side, closer to retirement, right? I assume you don't want to touch that because that's your safety... Even at this age, right, you you put that money aside for later on in retirement, and there are some financial challenges with taking money out of your RSPs. When Mm -hmm. you take that money out, you're now being taxed on that money. So there might be a tax bill at the end of the day. So there might be some serious consequences by pulling out those RSPs. Okay. Okay. Continue. (laughs) RESPs is another one to pull out, to be wary of pulling out the RESPs because you don't get the government grants that go into the RESP. So you're just pulling out your portion of the the money, right? Yeah. So you got to be careful with that. Okay. So the trustee is going to take a look and see, are there any realizable assets available to the estate? And your estate is essentially like a pot of money that's distributed to all of the listed creditors that we have there. So they're going to say, if there's assets, we're either going to take those assets as the trustee and sell them and put that money into the estate to disperse to your creditors. Mm -hmm. Or we may ask uh, the client to purchase back that asset. So let's say you did have a vehicle that has more equity in it than the Mm $5,000. We may say, okay, pay back the extra equity and you get to keep your car. Essentially, if you've put the money into the estate rather than us selling the vehicle and putting the money in the estate. Okay. So that's how assets function. And then the other portion of it is we take a look at your income. So the government has this standard. It's called the superintendent standard. It gets updated every year. The Sorry, what standard? <clears throat> the superintendent standard. Okay. And it just kind of has a listing of if you're a single family, I think it's uh, $2,203 right now this year. And really, it's based on the LICO. So the LICO is the low-income cutoff. Every year, the government puts out amounts of money per family member and says, if you make less than this amount of money, you qualify for additional benefits. Yeah. Full GST, you get maybe the Alberta family credit, working credit. There's a bunch of credits that you'll get. So they use these numbers as well in bankruptcy to say, okay, if you're this threshold or less, you'll just get an easy bankruptcy, not easy, but the the minimum bankruptcy payment, and you won't have to pay any surplus income is what it's called. Okay. So most clients that fall underneath that threshold where they're making that income or less for their family unit, 
um, will pay anywhere from maybe 180 to $250 a month for a bankruptcy. That's okay. just the trustee's fees. If you make over and above that, though... Sorry, that amount of money, the trustee fee, for how long? It depends. So if you're under that threshold and you've never been bankrupt before, it would only be for nine months. Okay. Yeah. If you did file a previous bankruptcy, it would be for 24 months. Okay. So... Now, if you're over that threshold, that's when you have to pay additional money. So the government says, okay, you're over this amount now. Every dollar over and above this threshold, you have to pay 50% of it into your bankruptcy. And it's called surplus income. Okay. So let's say you made $1,000 over your threshold. Your bankruptcy payment would be $500 a month. Okay. For, now they don't do nine and 24 months anymore. It's for 21 months or 36 months. So they actually kick out the length of time that you're in bankruptcy. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So it in some ways it's more beneficial for low income? It could be. Yep. In terms of like length of time and amount. Okay. Mm-hmm. So sometimes if you're under that threshold and you have no realizable assets, a bankruptcy can be a pretty um, cheap option, right? It yeah. could be uh, inexpensive. Yep. Okay. But there's other things that kind of come with it. When you file into bankruptcy, you're filing into this like period of time. It's 9, 21, 24, 36. It's a period of time in which you have to submit income and expense reports. So you actually have to give the trustee um, your pay stubs and possibly a little budget to show this is the money that I had coming in. This is the money I had coming out. You have to attend two mandatory counseling sessions, which most people find really beneficial because yeah. you talk about budgeting, money management, reestablishing your credit. Yeah. You'll have to have the trustee do your taxes. So any tax return that you would be receiving actually goes to the trustee yeah. to go into your estate. And then you actually, uh, there's an uh, application for a discharge that has to happen at the end. Most people will get an automatic discharge, but sometimes it can require a court hearing. So there's a legal process at the end where there has to be this application to court for a discharge. Okay. So say you go through the, you know, you're fully discharged. How does that affect your credit or your life going forward? Yeah. So if once you get your discharge, um, it'll stay on your credit for the next six years. Six to seven years, depending on whether it's Equifax or TransUnion. And during that period of time, you can start to rebuild. So a lot of people think, oh, seven years, I can't have credit again. Yeah. That's also uh, a bit of a myth. You can actually have credit during that rebuilding period. You start with the secured credit card where you give them a deposit of cash, and then they give you a credit card with a limit, and you make a purchase onto it. You pay it off. Give these a gift card. (laughs) 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 Yeah, not quite. (laughs) Capital One has a really good one, Home Trust. Uh, Every bank will offer a secured credit card as well. So it's a really good way to rebuild. And sometimes if you have the income and you've rebuilt yourself, in, in a proper way, then most people won't feel the bankruptcy three to four years later. They can qualify for mortgages, car loans. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. So is there any other, do we go through all the options? So that's bankruptcy. And right. the reason why I kind of talk about bankruptcy first is that there's an alternative to that uh, through a licensed trustee. You could also consider doing a consumer proposal. So uh, some clients will come in and maybe they do have realizable assets or they do have this surplus income issue that I was kind of talking about. So their bankruptcy might actually be um, a really high payment per month because it's a shortened period of time. It's only 21 months or 36 months. And so the payment can be a little bit larger than their budget can handle. Sometimes we can offer like something like a consumer proposal. So what a consumer proposal is, is where we look as the trustee and kind of say, this is how much the creditors can expect if you were to file for bankruptcy. Let's say, for example, $20,000, right? This is how much is going to be realized in your estate, and this is how much the creditors are going to get. So instead, let's offer them a bit more, maybe $30,000 or thirty-five, and maybe you owe fifty, right? So it's not the total amount of what you owe. It's a portion of what you owe, but still better for the creditors in the long run because they're going to be getting back more money. Interesting. And then we, we plan that out over a five-year period of time. And so the payments tend to be a lot smaller per month, a little bit more manageable for the budget. And then we just make those payments. It feels, again, like a consolidation loan. You make the payment to the licensed insolvency trustee. They take that payment and pay it out to your creditors in your estate. Now, the creditors do... I've never heard of this before. Most people don't. I know. And it's a fantastic program. It's a really great great way for people to restructure. Okay. And yeah. is that what you guys do? That's... That's what I do here. There you go. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I do. The majority of our files tend to be more consumer proposals, right? Okay. Because it's a win-win. It's a win for the client. It's an easier monthly payment for them. And it's a win for the creditors because they get back more money. 
Okay. More people should know about this. I know. Which is why we're talking about it today. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the creditors do get to vote on it. So they have a 45-day period of time in which they can, usually they'll request a meeting and then they can say, yes, we will accept this proposal or no, we won't accept the proposal. If they say no, they usually kind of come in with a counter offer. Right. So they might say, no, we don't like this amount, but we would prefer this amount. Yeah. And the majority of creditors, 51% of the creditors will vote. And if they vote in acceptance, then the proposal gets passed. Okay. And so as the, I mean, I would assume as the trustee, you're kind of, I mean, you're looking at everything. So you're giving the creditors the sense of like, we believe this person can pay that back and here's why. And that kind of absolutely goes along with yeah. it. Okay. So the trustee is required to like prepare a report yeah. that says, yes, we believe that this is a benefit to you as well as to the client. And yeah. we agree. We feel that this proposal will be performed fully. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that one stays on your credit for the length of time that you're in the proposal plus an additional three years. So less time then than bankruptcy. It's about the same. Depending. Yeah. The nice thing about the proposal is that you can pay it off sooner. So let's yeah. say you end up agreeing with your creditors to pay back $30,000. At any time, you can accelerate those payments or make a lump sum, get it done sooner than the five years. Yeah. And then you can start, well, you can start rebuilding while you're in your proposal, actually. You can start to rebuild during that period of time. Oh my gosh. And then it could be on your credit for the length of the proposal plus three years. Some people will make lump sum proposal payments. So they'll just pay it out all in one month and then it just stays on their credit for an additional three years. Wow. Okay. Sorry. I'm really <laughs> kind of really taken aback by this because I truly did not know this existed and it seems like such a better option if mm-hmm. you can do that. Mm-hmm. And I know so many people that like years at like whether they worked in oil and gas or not years after are still looking for work and are just depleting all their resources and like lifetime savings right and it's kind of like so I I guess I'll circle back like for some of these options if you have just like a mass amount of money thing in your checking account obviously you're using that but if you only have your savings and RRSPs and RRSPs right these are options where you can keep those in place. Right. Cause ultimately the RRSPs, the way the, the legislation kind of looks at it is those RRSPs are set for future living, exp- like yeah. your living expenses when you retire. Right. It's the same as like your CPP pension. Yeah. Like nobody's going to touch that. Yeah. Yeah. No pensions. Pensions are completely exempt as yeah. well. So there's quite a few exemptions. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Is there anything we missed? That's I mean, the other option of like is, debt solutions. Yeah. I mean, do nothing is always an option. You could just choose to not pay your creditors, but you need to know that there are consequences for not paying your creditors, right? So the yeah. creditors have uh, remedies as well. So if you are unable to pay your debts, I, I would say if you can address them, fantastic. I mean, obviously stay in communication with your creditors and let them know, but there are certain things that the creditors can do. So for the first one that I rec- uh, tell people about is the banks have this thing called the right to set off. So if you bank where you borrow and you have a credit card at one of the banks and you also have a bank account at that same bank, if you don't make your payments, they can actually go into your bank account and take their payments mm-hmm. or they could freeze your account to kind of like keep themselves even. And mm-hmm. so that's what set off is called. So first and foremost, if you decide to do nothing, this will be a consequence of that. A lot of people will sometimes t- switch their bank accounts to another financial institution. They can't go into other financial institutions. Yeah. They can only go into their own. So set off is one thing. The creditors could also try to send you collections. So usually that's when you start to get collection calls from outside collections agencies that are collecting for them. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately your creditors can try to sue you or try to obtain a judgment against you for those debts. So what they're going to do is um, they're going to try to get a judgment against you, possibly to garnish your wages or put a lien on your property, a house, a vehicle, things like that. And if you don't Uh, file a defense against that judgment they'll likely get an automatic judgment against you so sometimes when people are struggling and um, they haven't dealt with their debts they might get a letter that says we're going to start garnishing your wages tomorrow unless the creditors obtained a judgment against you they can't just start garnishing they have to go through that legal process so it's a scare tactic sometimes yep sometimes now there are creditors like the cra uh, so if you owe the government they can be a little bit different yeah so (laughs) They can go into any bank account. They can also just start garnishing without going through the judgment process. Right. They can put a lien on property and that lien actually turns into something that's very similar to a mortgage. So it can never be lifted. Right. Until the property is sold or the debt is paid back. So don't do nothing. 
when the, I always say open lines of communication with your creditors is better than nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I think this has been super helpful. So for, I always like to leave, okay, two things. I would say about 40 to 50% of our listeners are coming from the U.S. Mm-hmm. Do similar types of things exist in the U.S.? They do. They're they're called like Chapter 11, Chapter 13 okay. are similar type programs. I know there's definitely credit counseling down there. Yeah. It's a little bit different as far as the legislation is con- yeah. concerned in the United States, but they would have to talk to a bankruptcy lawyer. So okay. their lawyers specialize in bankruptcy. Yep. Okay. So go see a bankruptcy lawyer. Yes. Or talk to your bank or... You can do all of those steps. Yeah. Yep. You can even access credit counseling in the United States yeah. and see about it that way, as well as talking to a bankruptcy lawyer okay. if you feel like you need something similar to a proposal or if you needed a bankruptcy, which would be a chapter 11 and a chapter 13. Okay. Yeah. Um, are there sort of resources that you would highly recommend sort of people check out that we can include in the show notes? Yeah, there are um, some really good websites that I can send you to. Yeah. So I would definitely check out the Credit Counseling Society. They have some really great ones as well as Money Mentors. They have some really good webinars on budgeting and money management, yeah. which are awesome to read. I can also provide you with um, some resources to our website as well so that you can get some more information on consumer proposals and bankruptcies. And the other thing is, is like people can just, you know, pop us a quick email yeah. um, and we're always available by phone if they I mean here consultations are absolutely free yeah so they can just kind of call and say help yeah (laughs) and we'll be there awesome I also feel like I don't know if it's just me or if it's other listeners but where they're going to listen and go okay I really need to get my budget in check is there a sort of budget I, I know you talk about the money tracker that your banks have but is there like a budget template or an outline that you really recommend for people yeah there's one called mymoneycoach.ca okay. and I'll give you the link to that place and that's a really good place to do your budget online okay another one is mint is yep. another app that you can use and I think why why not is might be in a why yeah. don't you have a budget or something like that yeah is another really great app that you can use for budgeting tools okay yeah, because I know we've, my husband and I have used some of these different apps before. We haven't used Mint. Well, we haven't used that other one that we recommended either. And we found them, maybe this was more of a tracker. Hated the tracker mm-hmm. on a daily basis because we just didn't do it. But to have a tracker through the bank would be really helpful. So I'm going to look into that personally. Yeah. But the budget one's really interesting. Okay. And sometimes just with budgeting, I like to do it on a sheet of paper. I'm like yeah. so old school with that. I just kind of write it down. And because again, uh, a budget is just a projection of what you think the yeah. month is going to be like. So if you have a really good idea of what your bills are, you're going to be able to kind of jot down your budget quite yeah. quickly. It's the tracking and the proof that yeah. you're like, oh, I think it's this. It's kind of like dieting, right? If you're yeah. just like, I'll eat 1200 calories a day. And then when you realize that you went to McDonald's three times, yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be 1200 calories a day. <laughs> and so do you recommend like people are looking at this on a monthly basis? Like you should know like I understand you work in a financial world but like you should know your stuff yeah check in with your money a lot and then I always say at first you might be budgeting all the time maybe once a week you're putting together a budget and if you're in financial crisis you might need to budget paycheck to paycheck and that's okay after a while and things are settled and there are no major changes you only really need to do a budget unless there's a major shift in your expenses or your income right right because your budget should be the same from month to month and then when you're getting your proof you're just tweaking that budget oh we actually spend around three hundred dollars on gas a month okay we got to increase our budget or we're actually doing this so you're just kind of tweaking your budget from here and there so you can go through i typically set my budget for the year and i'm good to go yeah and then i just track it to see if i'm on track every month yeah um and so that's kind of what we do the other thing i would recommend is that if you're in a partnership with anybody is to have those open lines of communication right because those can be one of the biggest reasons that people file for divorce and separation is this they're not talking about money money problems are a big one what is it like we have such a stigma around talking about money Mm -hmm. it's one of the last three things that people don't like talking about in public no for sure yeah and like and and i even like talking about like how much someone makes like in like your colleagues or whatever like it just seems to be this huge secrecy and yet if you don't talk about it you also don't know if you're being paid a fair wage compared to your coworkers. right I think that's a lot of like a HR issue. I yeah. also find that because they're always like, oh, you can't say anything and this is confidential information and now you're stuck not talking about it. But you're right. You don't have a really good barometer whether yeah. you're, you're being paid fairly. I would say that the HRDC website online um, will tell you what ranges are for each profession, which is kind of nice. So you can use that. Yeah. But yep, 
it is. It's one of those things that we just don't talk about. People, we need to normalize the conversation about debt. We need to have these conversations because I would say easily one in five to one in three people are struggling with debt and they've probably had to go through these issues. I guarantee you somebody you know has had to do a consumer proposal or bankruptcy. They just didn't tell you about it. See, that's interesting because we always talk on the podcast about like, yeah, we need to talk about things more. Like, you know, I've dealt with postpartum depression or just like general depression or all that kind of stuff. And like the percentages are high. Mm -hmm. And yet I still think we talk about depression and (laughs) mental illness more than we talk about debt. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad that we are starting to have those open kind of communications about mental illness. And we're starting to see that, yes, this is actually something that people struggle with. And now we're having those. And part of it is sometimes that's a symptom of a financial problem. Yeah. So we need to now start digging into the why, you know, it's, it's kind of like, what are the things that are causing depression and anxiety and sometimes the finance is part of it so we need to dig deeper money is huge mm-hmm. yeah I mean because that is your day-to-day can I pay my bills my livelihood yeah right there's a fascinating book that I usually bring up when I'm doing my financial coaching course and it's called scarcity when too little means so much and it talks about the scarcity mindset and really gets into the psychology about when you're resource deprived so when somebody is resource deprived whether it's food money Um, water, any of those things, what happens is the brain goes into overdrive and it constantly thinks about that thing. It can't stop thinking about that thing. So when you're struggling with finances because you don't have enough money to make your bills, all you're doing is thinking about money all the time. You become less productive. Your IQ actually decreases during that period of time. You're unable to solve complex problems. Um, It's fascinating. Does that book also talk about like how to get out of that scarcity mindset? The only way to get out of that scarcity mindset is to not like to get more of that resource. Okay. Yep. Okay. So it, it, it's like, it, it was definitely one that I read about poverty reduction and things and that right. we can't keep people in these types of mindsets. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we'll include that in the show notes as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I really, really appreciate it. I know I found it helpful. I'm sure many of our listeners will as well. So thank you. Awesome. I could talk about money for hours. There we go. <laughs> <laughs>